Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 30 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the Twisted Genius, Dean Ayers, and I am joined, as ever, by my esteemed colleague, the the Cockney columnist, Liam Happ. Liam, how are you doing, sir? Uh, I'm feeling pretty good for someone who has this, uh, this tremendous feeling of deja vu. It does feel like Groundhog Day a little bit over here, but I do like Cockney communist. I just said communist, didn't I? I'm doing it to myself. You did. I might as well yeah, be a Cockney not... communist now. You, you are now the Cockney communist. Oh, yeah. for crying out loud. <laughs> As, as we as we previously established, I think we previously established, unless of course we established it on the uh, the first version of this episode. We'll we'll tell you about that in a minute, listeners. That uh, that you um, you were you know born within the the earshot of the Bow Bells, which Was makes you indeed. genuine cockney. Yep, uh, long-suffering FWA diehards will remember that stupid bunch of idiot fans called the Mile End Posse. That was a shoot, brother. Yep. I'm from Mile End, Bow. Uh, live up more Welling way now, but yeah, Cockney boy and apparently a communist. <laughs> apparently so. I was in your neck of the woods this past Sunday, actually. I was uh, in Bethnal Green, just a few stops down the the central line. Technically, uh, where we met. Was that where we actually? I thought that was Wolverhampton. Up, no, uprising one. Oh. That was that was my first exposure to FWA live, and well, I think with all the shows I lingered around and made friends slash enemies. You would fit into either <laughs> of those categories to your credit. Uh, Clearly, but yeah, you know, it was definitely you and Greg Lambert especially. I mingled with the right people. I, I like to think. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, so um, yeah, we're at the uh, the famous Resistance Gallery or the infamous Resistance yes. Gallery. Uh, in Bethnal Green for a, uh, a show that had been moved from, uh, uh, where was it? We were originally meant to be at the, uh, the O2 in Islington, but um, for reasons beyond our control, I then being dicks, uh, it didn't happen. So, um, and, and then I've got another show this, this coming Sunday. It's the big international battle Royal at, uh, in IPW, the uh, Moat Park Centre in Maidstone. So um, if you get yourself down there, do. If you can't get yourself down there, it'll be on the uh, IWN, the International Wrestling Network, with uh, me and Mr. Ricky Slatter on commentary. It's um, it's always good fun. Always, always just try and uh, try and make him uh, just laugh and lose his composure as much as possible. Which should be the primary goal of commentary. In my in my uh, very brief run doing a few years of uh, local football commentary. Uh, me, me and my co-coys always like to have a game where we'd set ourselves a challenge pretty much of getting a really weird random word just just like shoehorned in somehow it usually oh, yeah. be a, a there'd usually be a nice drizzle of in-house humor involved in that can't be a bit of inside baseball can you indeed now do, do you want to just lift the veil to our listeners about why why this is groundhog day 
Yes, so basically, in the great immortal words of your hero and mine, Vincent Russo, uh, everything that's happening is fake except for this right now, which is real. So basically, we recorded last week our special February look at a Super Bowl, Super Bowl Revenge. We filmed it in March because... WCW because reasons you know we didn't get the chance to do it in February but we thought you know we put it out to the fans they pick Super Bowl Revenge we're gonna do this episode yeah, the even absolute, late the absolute bastards we gave them things like Super Bowl 1 Super Bowl 3 some really good ones and no the complete bastards chose Super Bowl Revenge thank they, you very much they do hate us but the karma was is that it took us till after February then did to finally sit down and record when we did I then went into post-production mode and I thought right I'll run through this quite easily uh, it turns out that the first 25 minutes were extremely rattly and just unfixable, which was a shame. I'm not quite sure what led to that. So basically, we're, we're, what you're listening to now, up until the third match on the card, is going to be us trying to replicate what I assure you was the most amazing discourse in this podcast history. I mean, those, those oh, first two matches, we were five stars. I mean, Dave Meltzer even said six stars because we convinced yeah. him we recorded it in the Tokyo Dome. <laughs> I love I love that meme mostly because he reacts to it. It's a silly meme, but yeah. and if people keep reacting, just like Cole Frotch to the to the Wembley digging, then people are gonna keep doing it. So, but yeah, it also, was um, it was a good little we, thing. We had sorry, I was gonna say also we had um, Kenny Omega sitting on the sofa listening in, so that made it another yeah that made it six and a half stars. Yeah, I, I didn't appreciate him helping himself in my fridge. Otherwise, it was nice to have him round. Yeah, definitely. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one. And you're listening to Because WCW. Now choke on that. Right. Should we um, should we get on with uh, Super Bowl Revenge? The Super second Bowl attempt? Revenge. I look forward to it. It'd make an awesome video game, wouldn't it? Super Bowl oh. Revenge. Do you remember WCW the NWO Revenge? I think we might have mentioned this before. It was the greatest video game ever. This is why I brought this up. Yeah, Revenge was awesome. But as much as I say Super Revenge would make a great video game title, if you think about it, they actually released a, a SNES port called Super Brawl and they released the infamous Revenge. So, of course it will, because you're basically combining two pre-existing video game names. But yeah, Super Revenge, I'm a massive fan of it. Uh, and I might confuse you at first, Dean, because you'd think it would be called uh, Super Brawl 11. But yeah. the whole thing here was that, for some weird reason, and they were stopped from doing this three months in because they went belly up, but WCW decided to base their pay-per-view names around the seven deadly sins. They had 12 pay-per-views. Don't ask me how it's going to work. But they had Sin in January, Super Bowl Revenge in February, and their last pay-per-view was Greed. You'd think if they just kept five of their best names, such as Super Bowl, Starcade, Great American Bash, Bash at the Beach, you keep those ones, and then you change the throwaway ones, such as Sold Out and Uncensored, into these, you could make it work. But I have no idea where they're going with it. Thankfully, we never had to find out. Well, bear in mind that there's seven deadly sins, but they've called one sin, which itself isn't one of the seven deadly sins because it is the sin itself. But then, the yeah, 
they couldn't call it Vengeance because that was a WWE pay-per-view or WWF at the time pay-per-view, so it was Super Bowl Revenge. But the main thing for me is I'd be really interested in how you'd be able to successfully market a pay-per-view called Gluttony or, more importantly, a pay-per-view called Sloth. Well, I think the latter one will be headlined by Kevin Nash for sure. Yay! Had to. Here all week. Had Try the to. veal. <laughs> okay, so it's February the 18th, 2001, and we're coming at you from the famous Nashville Municipal Auditorium, which is a famous wrestling venue that has previously hosted many WCW events, including uh, WrestleWar 1989. You remember the, the fantastic Steamboat v. Flair match? Uh, and three consecutive Starcades in the mid-90s. It's also hosted WWF events such as uh, In Your House 2 and a pay-per-view special featuring Hulk Hogan and Brutus Beefcake feed Randy Savage and Zeus inside a steel cage, which um, was a kind of eerie precursor to the uh, worst main event in WCW history of Uncensored 96, which, of course, we covered in Episode 9 along with Paul Benson. I don't think any of us have really recovered from yet. No, I certainly haven't, and I'm not looking forward to the day that we review one of those Starcades you touched upon, which would be Starcade 94, headlined by Hulk Hogan versus Ed Leslie. Oh, to think. Can you imagine being a, a local a, a local to in the Nashville area and going and attending Wrestle War and being blown away by it and thinking five years later, you know what, I'm going to pop down to this pay-per-view and see what they've got to offer, and you get that instead. Yeah. Starcade, you know, the granddaddy of all. It's going to be a good one. I mean, you know, Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, people like that have headlined in the past. It's it's going to be great. Oh, no. Talk about kill the town. That's how you get it done. So Tony Schiavone calls it a night for revenge. But things have got so bad in WCW by this point where they're they're months away from ceasing to exist, basically. Um, Not even he can be bothered to give us a trademark exaggeration. He does, however, tell us every title is going to be on the line tonight. Plus, we'll decide the new commissioner of WCW. Um, This is where it gets a bit weird now. He asks whether Kevin Nash is going to turn up for his main event world title shot against Scott Steiner, which which is obviously a really good way of putting over the importance of your world title, your main event, and the entire pay-per-view. Well done, Tony. Well, it's not his fault. It's the storyline written for him. No, blame Tony. It's all your fault, Hyperbole Machine. It's your fault for being so knackered at this stage. Um, Yeah, this this is the first of many tropes from the early 90s no sorry late 90s early 2000s professional wrestling scene that you'll see scattered along this because as far as those two pay-per-views go the the last three are uh, trotting off to a to a miserable fate but they're nowhere near as bad quality wise at least i don't think so as the pay-per-views that got them in this mess in the first place but one thing that can't be uh a allowed to be getting away with is the fact that it is full with this stuff that's just stunned to death in the attitude era quote unquote one of them is the oh our headline hasn't showed up are they going to show up and i hate it we'll talk about more of these as we get along or at least hope i do from memory i'm pretty sure i do in our first attempt at recording this so hopefully this will just segue (laughs) seamlessly 
Fair enough. Um, Shivani's joined by Scott Hudson at the commentary desk. Uh, we then get shown footage from uh, the pre-show earlier on the evening of Billy Kidman being attacked by Road Warrior Animal, which means that Kidman is out of the opening six-way cruiserweight clusterfuck and a replacement, a mystery replacement, I hasten to add, has been found. So, Liam, are you ready for our opening match? I am ready for the opening match. Okay, you, you may be surprised to learn the names of the people in the opener because they don't normally wrestle in the opener. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a cruiserweight. Now that this is a this is brilliant. This is because WCW. It's a cruiserweight six way four corners match uh, between Evan Courageous, Jamie Noble, Kaz Hayashi, Yun Yang, Shannon Moore, and our mystery opponent. Um, so. The first thing that sprung to my mind is these guys are still doing the openers. I mean, weren't they in openers like about two years ago or something? Not quite two years ago. We're we're looking about a full year at this point. A full year. Uh, But especially the last four or five months, around the time that Vince Russo was kicked out. Although I I believe Russo had them open one or two pay-per-views, but obviously that would be with such gimmicks as a dancing tank and things like that. Uh, After that, we started to settle into a trend, as you said, different combinations of the same six guys. You know, there's pros and cons to that, but the biggest thing to remember, and I know we can't assume anything because we never did find out where WCW went after March, but if you get to the stage later where we talk about who is the mystery replacement for Kidman and where that leads, especially in the final pay-per-view and the final Nitro, you'll see that there was a bit of forward advancement. And I like to think that the other five members of this Fame 6 stood a similar chance of such advancement down the line, except maybe Evan Courageous, because he wasn't all that good. Yeah. Well, um... Yeah, Shannon Moore seems rather shocked that the, the the sixth man, the new sixth man, is his tag team partner, Shane Helms. Um, and so, despite having three established tag teams in this match, um, two of whom are dressed in identical matching gear, uh, it's a singles match under elimination rules. Why? Go on, Liam. Because there's a cruiserweight title match on the line to the winner, and only one person can challenge for it. Oh, is that a logical thing? Sorry. But yeah, there is a there is definitely a bit of because those W about this. Uh, and it, it, at, at first glance, there might be a little bit of that about the way the match unfolds. But I'm going to try to defend with a little bit of logic as we go along, uh, as we did before. Okay. Uh, and there will be some bits as you... And I already both know that we're probably a bit indefensible, but we'll do our best to get our heads around it. And I, I feel like we'll have moderate success. OK, well, we start off with Noble v. Moore, but, you know, this is going to be a fast moving match. Lots of tags. Um, and indeed, within two minutes, we're getting multiple dives as the young dragons hit a beautiful pair of stereo acai moonsaults onto Moore and Helms. Um, the crowd, they're, they're reacting to the dives, they're reacting to the high spots, but not much else. Um, and despite being a singles match, there are lots of double team moves between the tag teams. Um, and the other thing is, if it is elimination rules and it's singles match, why are people making saves? This that really annoyed me. 
I know I'm trying to put logic into a WCW match, but it annoyed me. Well, there are there are logic to some of the saves, I really do feel, but not all of them. And there are a couple of times where you'd sit there and think, honestly, it would benefit you to just sit and watch that elimination happen. But sometimes you can explain it away. And it's, it's in my opinion, it's down to commentary to just add that extra layer of explanation by... by explain that afterwards or speculating that afterwards in kayfabe terms uh if you think as you said technically you've got three teams of two three regular teams and you don't really want to come down to a situation where the last three are you and an established tag team who are more than happy to batter you and then settle it between themselves you, know, you think of some of the strategies you see on game shows such as The Weakest Link or reality TV like Survivor. You've got, you've got to play the game a little bit. And I would love to hear a commentator say what I'm saying right now because I think it would help uh, prevent people from going, oh, WCW being stupid again. But yeah, some of the saves were a bit silly and it feels like they're just going through the, the motions and muscle memory of what they do within the confines of a wrestling match they're so used to wrestling an identical match but with different rules it's it's bound to get out of hand a little bit some of it made sense yeah. some of it didn't and they could have done such a better job of making it clear so i don't hold the blame just at the people involved in the match and the agent putting together the match but we also have to bear in mind that tony shivani is a month away from losing his job and he doesn't give a shit anymore Oh, he checked out ages ago. I'm shocked he didn't follow Bobby Heenan out the door. But he didn't have too many yeah. quality replacements, especially as the as the head honcho, the man who ties it all together. He he always had that about him. Yeah. So um, everyone attempts a top rope move to ground his opponent. Everyone misses. It looks kind of stupid because after a couple, you kind of know what's going to happen. Um, we then have another series of dives to the floor. The fans are appreciating the highlight reel moments most definitely. Um, Courageous and Noble hit a great double-team powerbomb and springboard forearm combo on Hayashi, but both men want to pin him and pull their partner off. Not not like that, obviously. Hey. Um, hey, as the commentators despair at their egos. Um, Yang then sends Noble out and attacks Courageous, who fails to sell it and then sort of falls to the floor in a heap that... It just looked basically Yang and Courageous together look pretty awful in this match. Um, he goes for a springboard moonsault, completely blows it, and then just drops Courageous on his head, backdrop style, for the first elimination. So at least Evan Courageous is out of there. I mean, yeah, they didn't <laughs> set the world alight, the two of them. Um, Noble eliminates Yang 30 seconds later with a jumping tombstone. More then eliminates Noble with a top rope rocker dropper style move. He calls bottoms up. Um, it's more in Helms double teaming Hayashi now. Helms signals for the vertebraker. Um, and we are in that exact situation you're talking about where Hayashi is now facing uh, an established team in more in Helms. Um, so Helms signals for the vertebraker, but more attacks him with another bottoms up and covers Helms. Hayashi breaks the pinfall up, which still doesn't make any sense at all because you've got one member of a tag team trying to pin the other member exactly. of their tag this team. Exactly, this is what I was saying earlier. Yeah, with, um, and, and he, <laughs> he kind of breaks the pinfall up with a kick, but he, has, he seems to accidentally and legitimately kick the referee in the back oh, of the head. Yeah. He totally does. No, he caught him big time. You watch, you watch this one of them things where referee actually has to like recover. He's rubbing his head. Obviously, normally yeah. when we see a referee get hit, they're 
dead on the floor for five minutes. But it's the one of the few times you see a very realistic sell from a ref. That's because he got yes. clobbered. Because he actually got clobbered. So, yeah, more. he then covers more. The, the, this dazed referee makes a count. Um, but but Helms pulls Hayashi off again, not like that. So he can lay some punches into his tag partner who attacked him, even though this is a six-person four-corners match with three three tag teams, but it's actually a singles match with every man for himself. Are you still following this? Good. Um, Hayashi goes up top for a moonsault on Helms, but Moore rolls Helms out of the way and lies down himself, moving before Hayashi crashes to the ground. At this point, I am so confused. Um, Helms then gets back in the ring, hits Moore with Nightmare on Helms Street for the pin. It's down to Helms v. Hayashi. Hayashi gets a great um, near fall with a snap German suplex. More near falls follow. The crowd are really getting into this now. Uh, and Helms gets the win after 17 and a half minutes with the Vertebraker. The last minute sub has won the match. It's like Denmark at Euro 92 all over again. Hey! I knew you were going to make sure that got back in. Absolutely. Yes, listeners, Dean did reel off that one in the last one. And he's entitled to it because it's a pretty awesome line. Um, this match really... I have used it on commentary before. Yeah. <laughs> in, in IPW commentary, oh, I yes. compared Luke Dragon Phoenix to Denmark in Euro 92. So now he's going to find out the poor sod that he's, he's recycled goods. Yeah. Ah, oh, bless him. I hope he listens anyway. Um, this match really needed a better slash more bothered to work slash more meticulous agent covering it really. Especially with the relative lack of experience of the actual combatants. Um, it was a fun opener. You can't deny that. There's some great moves. And you you mentioned the big blown spot with uh, Yang and Courageous. But at the end of the day, I, th- I thought you really glossed over. The the recovery was, well, well, everyone's giving me stick for doing this. He scoops him up and hits one of my favourite moves from back time. I believe he called it Yang time, where he gets him in the Alabama slam position, but then just drops to his knees and spikes him on the head. Inverted tombstone, you call that? I always like that move. It's awesome. Uh, and you notice that all the stick he was getting for a horrible spot, everyone just gasped when he hit that move. And it's a it's a good way to recover from a flub. Uh, there were there were loads of big moves. You, you, you pretty much win over most of them. Great dives. It was good. 17 and a half minutes, though, for this. Should be about 12. And that would have helped. Because as you said, crowd drifted in and out. But they were into it overall. You shorten it down. You give them less to try and remember. You might not have such a mess as it was at parts. Not just in the poor execution of moves. But also the confusion of saves. They're probably just doing it because they've got a kill time to the next spot. But you give them a more crisp, concise game plan. And you're looking at one of their best yet. Because most of the matches they had in any combination were all great affairs and yeah as i mentioned earlier there was the first sign of a breakout from this because shane helms had earned a single shot which no one saw come in at sin against chavo guerrero jr he came up short he comes from out of nowhere to um to to win this as a last minute replacement he was actually eliminated in the qualifiers on nitro and he gets another bite of the cherry as we all know now he won his first cruiserweight title at the last pay-per-view and he went into the deal with wwe when they took over with higher stock and it showed it took him a little while when the hurricane character to really start getting over but he definitely had a head start 
because of that push right at the end. If only because they had to expose him on TV a little bit more than the Shannon Moores and that, just to get the title yeah. back onto Kidman, which is what they did first things first. But he it gave him that chance. By the end of the year, he was European champion. Not, not a huge bro in WWE, but more so than you can say of the likes of Yang and Moore, who took another couple of years to get decent exposure. So... Definitely. It was it was a big thing, and it makes you wonder if if those that have carried on. And I'm saying this as a man who's who's written three years of fucking fan fiction, and I could, <laughs> in my case, I definitely did. But I like to think any same Booker. We've spoken to Dave Penzer on uh, this podcast, and he said that he pretty much would have been part of the creative process underneath John Laurinaitis. You like to think those guys would have worked these these people up the ladder as new cruiserweight talents, such as the likes of AJ Styles and Christopher Daniels, started to come in in these guys' place. That's how I like to think it would have gone. Indeed. Yeah. Um, and and you, can, uh, you can read Liam's fan fiction on our website because www.podbean.com. Uh, we then go back to the comedy desk, the comedy desk, the commentary desk. Same difference. Some, sometimes it's the comedy desk, <laughs> um, where Shivani and Hudson show us. Now, now I really like this. The, um, you know how normally in wrestling you get, you know, the cameraman who just happens to be backstage and everyone is just going about their normal business while ignoring the fact that there's a cameraman pointing a camera in their face. What we have now is um, footage from a supposed security camera. Um, mounted up on the ceiling um so I, I i quite like that as a way of getting around things um yeah it was good i mean when we did look at uh greed uh, about a year ago check out that episode on our backlog uh they also did a device all throughout where the magnificent seven the big hill faction were filming each other i think bagwell was the owner of the camera technically but they were doing segments like that and it led to some drama in between the things. So who, whoever was really taking control overall, and they usually do a committee, I know, but whoever had the last say over those last few months while they were preparing for the Fusion takeover that never was, uh, was clearly trying to get them back to basics and a certain degree of reality, which is a, which is a fair response after enduring Vince Russo for six months. Indeed. Um, so anyway, yeah, the security footage shows Road Warrior Animal, um, Rick Flair and Chavo Guerrero Jr. all talking. And yeah, what we're meant to be thinking here is, did Chavo get Animal to take out Kidman for, for him so he wasn't in the match because you know, he doesn't want to defend the belt against Kidman? Um, the commentators speculate no one's heard from Kevin Nash since last Monday. Uh, we then have a promo from Hugh Morris talking about the difference between him and his previous character, General Rection. Ha ha ha. Huge huge... erection, yeah. Yeah, right. Subtle as um, a sledgehammer. Yeah, good old Vince So We then go backstage where Scott Steiner is ignoring the camera that's in his dressing room, as his wrestling tradition, as he gets a visit from Ric Flair, who's carrying an envelope and tells him not to worry about things. We then cut to Chronic arriving at the building, and Commissioner Lance Storm tells Brian Clark. Um, that he needs to get cleared by WCW's doctor rather than just his own doctor to be able to wrestle. Can we just get on with the wrestling match, please? Please. Oh, oh we're getting some entrance music now. Finally. <sighs> so match number two is The Wall v. Hugh Morris. And this is a result of the breakup of the MIA stable, the Misfits in Action, wasn't it? Yes, and isn't it funny how we're looking at this now uh, the first match, 
people vying for Chavo Guerrero's cruiserweight title. We've got the the attack by Animal on Kidman leads to replacement. We then see that segment that pretty much and commentary actually for all the things I was saying about the opener, commentary did a good job of 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 hammering home. Yes, it looks like he did call call in a favour to get Kidman yeah. his biggest threat taken out. So that revolves around it. And then you've got the breakup of the misfits in action, which also involved Chavo, Lieutenant Loco, and he was the man who instigated it. He was the first man to break away and he convinced Sergeant Awall to come out of it and become the wall. And the battle lines were drawn. You had uh, Chavo and Wall on the villainous side of the breakup, and you had Corporal Cajun, Lash LaRue, and General Rection going back to Hugh Morris on, on the good side. And I think that's what that primer was about, wasn't it, Dean? He was basically saying after being betrayed, he's he's uh, going back to his his more maniacal persona of Hugh Morris, which is a bit of retcon, yes. because if I remember correctly, he was mostly just a mid-card jobber. But then, yeah, I suppose he was a little, he was meant to be a little bit crazy, had to be reined in by Jimmy Hart. And he's trying to say he's digging deep into that psychotic persona to take down this giant who turned his back on him. Yeah, the laughing man, wasn't he? The laughing man, Hugh Morris. Which, yeah, wasn't the most intimidating... Um intimidating character but but hey um so this this match starts out as a brawl on the floor um there's whips into the guardrail using the ring steps and so on uh morris then drags wall back into the ring hits this great top rope elbow but he doesn't make the cover he instead gets wall up on his knees slaps him around the head um wall gets back to his feet lands a big boot and collapses to the ground again um wall then misses a top rope leg drop of no idea why a man of his size is going to the top, but I guess it, I, I suppose looking back, it was a sign of the times back in sort of 2000, 2001. Um, it's another trope we refer to. Yep. Add it to the list. Wall then hits a huge spine bust, but it's too exhausted to make the cover. Morris kicks uh, Wall low right in front of the referee, but nothing gets done. That's another, another move of the time. Oh, Just, that was one the worst, weren't it? Just ECW-style relaxed rules everywhere. Yeah. Um, so the crowd have gone quiet. Now the brawling and the top rope moves have ended, and they seem more interested in getting their signs on TV. Um, the pace is very slow indeed, or or to quote Scott Hudson and to take him completely out of context, this is not wrestling of any type. Um, having said that, Morris hits a big German suplex and Wolves in position for the moonsault, no laughing matter. Uh, Morris lands it, gets the three count in just under 10 minutes. He hits another moonsault. It went way too long and it lost the crowd midway through. Yeah, here's the thing. I, I know it, this This isn't, on paper, this isn't the match you look forward to, most people. You look forward to what we just had in the opener. That, you know, it, it, especially speaking about diehard internet fans, you look forward to the workers, the, uh, you know, the exciting wrestlers. Uh, but I won't lie, at the time... As as this was unfolding, sorry, week over week, I was really looking forward to this because I thought we was just going to get a good old-fashioned big man hoss battle. And I look forward to these two beating the tar out of each other for about five or six minutes and then getting a big move to finish. Instead, it drag, as you said, it drags on for ten minutes, involves every shortcut, every cliche known to man, when these two guys easily have enough stamina to go five minutes and just 
you know, slug it. You know, that's, that's what people want out of this sort of exchange. And the finish is Humorous' Moonsault, which nine times out of ten, he bloody misses. So, yeah, it was a very disappointing match. Yeah, he kind of landed with his chest hitting the bloke's far arm or something, I seem it's to remember. All, he did. Yeah, it's always such a vague connection, always. Sometimes he just lands his forearms on their torso. And the rest of the 300 pounds of a man just crashes on the mat and he kind of leans on them as he comes down. Oh, yeah, he's finished. He's toast. Find another finisher, you doofus. You bullying doofus. Allegedly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've always liked the idea of something. So I remember the build being all right. You know, they were in the stable. They split up. They've put the, you know, I shat on it a moment ago, but kudos for the effort for trying to make a thing of these guys going back to their previous personas. So they've got a thing here, and they're two big guys, and they should, by all rights, just be able to have a big old hoss battle and beat the shit out of each other. And I really think, uh, similar to what you said, we've trimmed a few minutes off, basically have them just beat the piss out of each other. As soon as they feel like they need to go to a rest hold, make the call for Hugh to hit the German and the moonsault. You do that, and mm. you've got a, you've got a different animal of a match, and exactly the sort of match that these two guys are tailored for, and also that this program was tailored for. It's a mid card thing; it's not that important, but just let them go out for five minutes, and you know this, the, the the fans are there, the fans are up for this, and as you said, they just yeah. by extending it, you lose them, and that's why sometimes less is more. Especially when you consider that this show started to overrun, they had to take time off the DDP stuff later on. You know, yeah. But, I mean, when have WCW ever had trouble controlling the time on their pay-per-views? Yeah, it's almost a badge of honour for them, isn't it? But one thing I will say to, the, to, to their credit so far on the show, even though some of it's not gone too right, and I'll make you completely correct earlier when you said that that was, that was a, a lot of backstage segments to do between just two matches but everything about the show so far all the storytelling is actually quite tight even if everything on the show doesn't float your boat with the stories they're going for the match quality could be better here or there a few blown spots in the open are too long in this one uh it's so much better than what Bischoff WCW became after the NWO had their peak in 96 and Nitro just became like this mess of just just get all the stars on the show and make up as you go along or or we know how much worse it got in 99-2000 for coherent storytelling now we're starting to see things make sense security Ooh. cameras weaving in stories of each other uh, the, the, the product's just as sad as it makes me the product's starting to look bearable before it's there is oh yeah this this whole show and then we will see as we go on this whole show has a a thread of a a narrative that makes complete sense so yeah um but we we now go to a a terribly hokey backstage segment (laughs) where um conan gets into an altercation with road warrior animal who's standing guard outside rick flair's office uh before a gaggle of local indie wrestlers posing security who've blatantly been just waiting around the corner come charging around that very corner and break them up. Um, we then see a video package documenting the breakup of the Natural Born Thrillers group about five minutes after they were formed. I must tell you a story. I won't, I won't say who, but there was a, a friend of mine who is a, um, a, a, a British wrestler who um, was 
uh, involved in when when they did WCW Nitro tapings. And I think it was like two, it was about November two thousand. It was a few months before this yeah. in in London. We attended those, and didn't we? Not together, we did indeed. But... No, um, but um, yeah, he was he was one of the you know the local indie wrestlers being security backstage and that. And there was some I can't remember who was involved in that, but there was some some segment where yeah they a, a very similar thing where they all had to rush in because of a and break up this backstage fight, and uh, they were getting direction. Um, Terry Taylor, he was set, he was running the whole segment, and just before they start filming, his last words to all of these people: bear in mind these are independent wrestlers. Now remember, guys, it's not real. Cheers, Terry. Cheers. You ready for match number three? I am. Excellent. It's time for the uh, World Tag Team Championship, where Mark Jindrak and Sean Stasiak uh, challenge our champions of Chuck Palumbo and Sean O'Hare. So the challengers, Jindrak and Stasiak, come out, but they're called Palumbo and O'Hare in the on-screen caption. Uh, they come out to Stasiak's awful Mr. Perfect rip-off music. <laughs> um, Shivani talks about forthcoming new ownership for WCW. Wasn't that the truth? Um, Palumbo and O'Hare come out, also identified as Palumbo and O'Hare on the caption. Um, Scott Hudson talks about all four men coming through the power plant, but Stasiak didn't. He, came, he was in the WWF when those guys were in the power plant plant but uh yeah they wreck on that yeah they, they just wanted him in the thrillers because yeah. they had nothing better for him to do fair enough um this is a basic tag team match by the numbers which is what you'd expect from three power plant guys where well the power plant was tell you what let's we, I, i'm sure we're gonna have a discussion about this I'll, I'll leave my thoughts for the power plant for a moment um all I'll say is that this match didn't hold my attention all that well. Um, Stasiak misses a big splash off the top on Palumbo. O'Hare can't get a tag in for pretty much the entire match. Eventually he gets in. He's the proverbial house of fire. Clotheslining everyone. Another basic move. Um, a jungle kick or super kick to Stasiak sets him up for O'Hare's swanton bomb to retain the tag titles for the champions. Um, to me, it's a, a passable basic tag match but not really what you'd expect from the pay-per-view from a major company well by, but, by all accounts they these guys have had previous matches i guess on what little house shows those those still ran and on tv and that and those reports are very, not very good according to dave Meltzer. but this one between the fact that it came on the on the heels of not very good matches between the four of these in in this combination and the fact that They've gone with a very basic, old-school, tried-and-tested tag team formula. Suggests that, you know, they've been assigned an agent for babysitting to just go, right, let's make sure this one's a little bit better. And you know what? I think it was. It wasn't amazing, but you can't go wrong with tag team formula. And that's exactly what's happened here. And I like the story of this, because you had the natural born thrillers in 2000. It was Vince Russo's typical, look, I'm giving chances to to fresh faces it makes me better than the than the rich history of wrestling guys who hold talent down but then he proceeds to treat them like shit or completely mismanage them defeat the purpose uh they were they were a bunch of 
jobbers for the most part and they were nowhere near ready for the spot they were in but for me this was the first step of things starting to make sense and you can tell that more wrestling minded people such as John Laurinaitis and Terry Taylor were starting to yield a bit of power in these last few months while they were trying to arrange the sale of the company because O'Hare and Palumbo are they're basically extracting the upside from the entire stable. These two guys are the closest to having competent wrestlers. They're the two best wrestlers. Uh, and they're making them... Because before this, and that was part of the appeal of this match, is you know, last year you had O'Hare and Jindrek coming together. You already had the perfect event from the New Blood days, Palumbo and Stasiak. I think that's what led to them just um, shoehorning Stasiak into the thrillers because he was already a tag team partner of Palumbo's when they decided to just put all the greenhorns in one place. And oh. they've done this thing where, you know, they've... Nash and DDP have completely bounced them all around and taken the tag titles. But then, to their credit, the previous month at Sin, they did this, it was a battle royal or a random drawing or something, like it was going to be any two thrillers. It ended up being O'Hare and Plumbo. And DDP and Nash did the about as close as they possibly could do in that situation with WSW the way it is. Um, of making them look good and putting them over. Obviously, it, was a, it wasn't a clean finish, but it was about as good as you was going to get in O'Hare and Palumbo's position against guys like DDP and Nash. And as we know, they then went on a very mini rampage for the rest of the company's existence, starting to look the part as a tag team, which at this stage of careers is exactly what you, what you want them to do. There were times where they put them on the mic for interviews. They shouldn't have done that. But just putting them in the ring, running through other tag teams, and in this case, taking care of uh, their previous partners who feel that the other two were lucky to get the tag title shot and that they are the better two. The, you've got a story here. You've got progression. They follow tag formula. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it to that extent for my liking. And considering what we know about guys like uh, Sean Stadiak, who, you know, by all he's having a great time in his in his post-wrestling career as a doctor, yeah, very very well known in his field, etc., etc. But yeah, chiropractor, yeah. isn't he? I think yeah. Uh, but, that this, but this is about as good as it's gonna get from him in the ring, really. I mean, the, yeah, the the thing the thing that I just don't like about this is that, as I said, this is a basic tag match with basic moves, you know super kicks and 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 clotheslines and it's when when you consider that you know WCW is the the number two company in America has been the number one company and they're vying for that number one position with the WWF okay they're they're losing badly by this stage but but you know the point remains that that's what they're aiming for to have these guys you know these rookies competing with each other for your world tag titles on a pay-per-view, a major pay-per-view just doesn't sit right with me. And I think, you know, this is, this is the problem for WCW. You look at the WWF at this point and in 2001, they had got Ohio Valley wrestling and they had got people like Randy Orton and Batista and um, John Cena all wrestling and learning their craft in OVW at this point. There was nowhere for guys from the power plant to go, you know, you said earlier, all the things that, you know, each company copied from the other. And the one of the most important things that, that WWF did that WCW didn't copy was 
um, w was having a developmental territory, so people could learn their trade in a a small a small arena. You know, this is what independent companies are for, so that people can can make mistakes in front of you know a couple of hundred people as opposed to a couple of you know, a few thousand people in in attendance or watching on pay per view. Yeah, it's a shame because they would have had no shortage of contacts in Georgia, Florida, Carolinas, other areas where they could have put together shows where you had reliable yeah. audiences of a couple of hundred of people because wrestling is very much in the way of life in that area and anything associated with WCW and NWA w would have that allure. They could have easily set something up like that. I agree with that point do, wholeheartedly. Do you know, do you know where... Yeah. Do, do you know where I think? I'm I'm just thinking where the problem might lie. I'm just thinking out loud there. This is a thought that's just popped in my head. It used to be that you know your TV tapings, your your worldwides and all that were were squash matches. And then with the era of of Monday Night Raw and Nitro and the the Monday Night Wars coming in, squash matches more or less went by the wayside. And WCW would use people established veterans with great contacts, people like the Italian Stallion and George South and people like that who ran in you know, Florida and Georgia, like you say, Liam, that, who, who had these independent companies because it was their rising stars, their new, their new blood who would be the, those jobbers. And that, that relationship may, might still be there to a degree, but that relationship had gone because the landscape had changed. Well, I'll say one thing is uh, in 99, 2000, when you had still had like Saturday night and things like that, weren't priority shows because you had uh, Nitro and unfortunately you also had Thunder to worry about. But things like Saturday night and Worldwide would have guys who would then become name wrestlers in the dying days of those two. But notably, you'd see a lot more of guys like Elix Skipper, who's known as Skip Over and one of the weirdest names I've ever seen for a wrestler. Uh, you'd see Devon Storm, who became Crowbar, and he was also yep. Tempest in TNA. You saw those guys doing job duty a lot more than you did the O'Hares and Gindrax. And I think that's also telling. Because, granted, they want to push these guys who are over six foot tall and have this tremendous look. Like Sean O'Hare, one of the best looks for a professional wrestler I've ever seen. But you've still got to gradually bring them into it. But... But that's a that's a valid point for early thrillers. I think at this juncture of WCW, they don't know if they're still going to be in existence. If they are, they need to figure out what they're going to do. I think they did the right thing here. They have extracted Palumbo and O'Hare. They've put them in a tag team. So they've still got a few things to learn. And the tag team's the best way to do it. And they really, for three months, they established them as quite good. They were, by a country mile, put forward as the more capable members of the thrillers who I remember that match at Sin where uh, O'Hare was running rings around Kevin Nash, backflipping on the ropes over Nash's head and hitting him with a super kick. And the fans were, were really reacting to things like this. The sort of offense you don't see people get on a Kevin Nash that often. 
Uh, they then won this match against their, you know, their former stablemates, which clearly establishes them as the as the champs and the better two. And we covered Greed about a year ago. If you go back and listen to that, if you watch it on the network, you'll see they had that infamous match where they destroyed Buff Bagwell and Lex Luger, two very established top-level guys in the company, for better or worse, in about 60 seconds. So they went all in on Palumbo and O'Hare as a tag team. I feel like they would have uh, been tag champions for most of 2001. It would have been the right move had those two continued. Heaven knows, with my little fan fiction I plug all the time, that's exactly what I did. <laughs> but I mean, you you look, at, you know, you compare how someone like you know Orton, Batista, Cena did compared to these guys. You know, you've got. I mean, out of all of these people. Jindrak has been far and away the most successful, but he's done it out of the spotlight of America. He's had a very successful career in Mexico as Marco Corleone in um, CMLL. Stasiak, as you mentioned, you know, had a few more years and then quit wrestling and has become a very successful chiropractor. Um, Chuck Palumbo was briefly in WWF after the takeover and disappeared. And, and Sean O'Hare had those vignettes that went nowhere and and that was that really yeah he bombed in front of a live crowd doing that character that infamous devil's advocate character uh he just couldn't do it on the road and uh, by all accounts that led to uh vince mcmahon and everyone else in 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 a creative position of power to panic and and pull the plug and he there lo and behold he was then cast as roddy piper's protege which went nowhere and was a bit of a shit role but that was why uh, he shouldn't have been put in that position in the first place because he weren't ready. He he was. I always thought he was a, a, obviously green early on, but he was one of the fastest developers in the ring. He was quite good at certain points as a wrestler. Uh, his promo. I, th- I think he did a promo either on this show or on the last pay per view greed where they kind of showed they should never have been given a mic. As much as I was praising the O'Hare Plumber tag team, they're just big angry guys shouting incoherent promos. Uh, so that was never a strong point, and they tried to emphasise that, and it backfired. Palumbo, they did a bit better by, because they paired him up with Billy Gunn, established name, established veteran, who also, what helped was that Billy Gunn, by this point, it was it was clear that he also needed a tag partner to thrive. He wasn't a singles guy, as long as he'd been around, as, as, as in as he was with the company, he was better as a tag team. So he benefited from having Chuck Palumbo around. Chuck benefited from learning. Um, I would dare say, uh, not just in the ring, but behind the scenes as well from Billy Gunn. And as we know, it actually led to some really fun angles. Uh, no one would have ever thought that when they first saw Palumbo and Billy Gunn put together. So that's as good as it got for the true. WWE. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've got praise for... We never got to see, it's a Schrodinger situation, we never got to see how it would have panned out, but I think it was the best thing to come of the doomed natural born thrillers things for them to extract O'Hare and Plumbo as a tag team. And if there was a Big Bang and the reboot of OCW under Fusion and Eric Bischoff, I like to think they would have been, guys like this tag team and Shane Helms would have been the first guys to make names for themselves other than the established stars that are already there. No, fair enough. Yeah, good point. Okay. Um, 
So next up, we've got the Dustin Rhodes promo, a brief promo looking ahead to his US title match with Rick Steiner later, but we're straight back into the wrestling action. Um, and uh, this is a, a highlight of the show. It's time for the Cruiserweight Championship as Rey Mysterio Jr. challenges Chavo Guerrero Jr. Um, I know I've said it before, but it's really weird to see Rey Mysterio without his mask. Or um, his junior. Because we're so used to it. Or, yeah. They both lost um, their juniors when they jumped ship a year later. Indeed, Vince hates juniors because he is, of course, Vince McMahon Jr. Um, but yeah, removing his mask, it just, I, I'm stating the obvious here, but it really removed a huge part of his marketability as WWE showed when they put the mask back on him and made him a megastar. Yeah. Um, just a crazy decision to take all the masks off the Mexicans, but, but hey. Um, and WCW's famous Ginger F is in charge of this one. Uh, Jamie Tucker, I think his name oh, was. Oh, don't give him um, a name. Ginger F. Ginger F. Ginger F. Ginger F. Um, so the match starts off fast. Lots of counters to emphasise how well these two know each other. Not that the commentators mention it at all, but I'm saying it now. Um, both men counter each other's attempted top rope fence. Chavo gets Ray in the gory special and then the gory bomb. And it's all Chavo at this point. Uh, Ray gets some momentary offense, but each time he looks like turning the tide, Chavo counters him. Um, the match is telling a great story in that respect, even if the commentators are completely missing it. Uh, Chavo clamps on an STF back on the outside. Chavo's getting cocky with an added swag at his demeanor as he's now dominating his challenger. Um, he then grabs an old Rey Mysterio mask from ringside and puts it on Rey as he lays the boots in. Um, commentators are doing a good job, at least, of explaining the significance of this here um, and what masks mean in Mexico. Chavo goes up top but gets cut off by Rey, who puts the mask on Chavo and hits the top rope Hurricane Rana. A spinning head scissors sends Chavo to the floor and buys Rey some recovery time. Chavo grabs the title belt from the commentary desk but gets a, a really good piece of camera work because uh, you get a flip plancher from Rey Mysterio who just sort of appears from the side of your screen. Back in the ring, Rey goes for a lion salt, but he loses his footing and manages to sort of fall on his back, saving himself from a bad injury. And in a, a brilliant piece of improvisation, quick as a flash, Chavo covers him um, whilst being able to check that he's okay. He covers him with his feet on the ropes to move things on in and uh, move things on and check on him, as I said, for a two count. I just thought that was fantastic. Um, Chavo brings a chair into the ring, props it in the corner between the top and middle ropes. Ray goes for a springboard hurricane run, but again loses his footing on the ropes. When he finally hits it to the outside, Chavo bounces hard off the floor right in front of the camera. It's a great piece of uh, piece of camera work. Ray lands a great-looking spinning DDT. He goes to get the chair in the ring, but uh, Ginger F takes it off him. Um, meanwhile, Chavo gets another chair from under the ring, and as Ray goes to grab him to bring him back into the ring, Chavo smacks Ray in the head with the chair, unseen to the ref who's disposing of the other chair. Chavo then hits the brain buster for the win to retain the title in a shade under 16 minutes. Um, fantastic match, only spoiled a little by the slips on the ropes. Yeah, uh, this, this is undoubtedly a, a great cruiserweight title match, and one of the key parts of, even though it was fleeting with the company dying a month later, it was the cruiserweight title was coming back to what it used to be. You you had that batch of guys on the underneath who were in the opening match who, yeah, they'd be wrestling each other a lot. But as I said, the, the Shane Helm stuff gave you hope that 
that they'd form a proper cruiserweight division and be in and around the belts. You had the cruiserweight tag team titles coming the following month as well. We never really got a chance to see. And you've got Chavo Guerrero, who I've, I've made reference to this. And, and it's, it's a fun thing to put out there now because... Uh, your typical diehard wrestling fan's opinion of Chavo Guerrero is reasonably low these days. He kind of uh, put people off latter-day WWE, and when he went to TNA for a little bit, no one really liked what he did there. People got a little sick of him, but I'm not exaggerating when I say this. Uh, late 2000, early 2001, not a long time period, I know, he was legit top 10 in North America. I really, he was one of the best guys out there. And this match is a great example that you touched upon a couple of little things that he did to cover for, for instances. But if you look, I, I, I would, I, I would implore everyone to just enjoy this match first and foremost. But if you like going under the hood, watch it a second time and watch very closely. Uh, Ray's having a, you know, one of the best wrestlers of all time is having a really bad night he's he missed a lot of stuff he was really rough around the edges and patchy with, with the body of his work and Chavo carried him through that to uh to a four four and a half star match uh he was just shit hot in this role and he was on the verge of putting Shane Helms over big and you know I, I never thought Shannon Moore or anyone or Jamie Noble and that you know they're good wrestlers uh talented guys i enjoyed watching him uh but for me the big reason why shane helms seemed to always do a little bit better than guys like that after wcw uh he had a couple of inches as well that helps i guess but for me the fact that chavo helped make him with those two pay-per-view matches and that Dying embers of WCW feud between the two, I think really helped Helms' career and helped him stand above a lot of these other guys. You know, they all got Yang, everyone except for Kaz Hayashi really got their shot with WWE. And with the help of the Hurricane gimmick, Helms had the best shot. And he's got, I think he's got Chavo to thank for that. Chavo was just amazing at this time period. And this match is a great example of it. So, yeah, I, I do remember when um, Shane Helms came over last year to uh, do a show for IPW. Lovely fellow, by the way, really nice guy. And one thing he um, mentioned to me when I was just going through some info for my commentary notes, and I, I never realised this, was he um, is the only person to have held the WCW and the WWE cruiserweight belt, he said. Oh. It's not that much of a distinction when you consider what WWE did with that title. Although, that True, being said, Rey Mysterio held it. Did he hold the WWE Cruiserweight? He did indeed. He beat Matt Hardy for it. What a bastard. He lied to me. Oh, well, we'll pull him up on Twitter about that. We have chatted to Mr. Helms on Twitter before about his theme music, so we'll have to bring but, him um, He did... Well, it might have been then, because he's, he's held... I'm looking at this now. He held the European Hardcore Cruiserweight and Tag Team titles in the WWE. So he held a hell of a lot. There was something there was something about titles, and I'm sure it was that. But we'll I'll have to ask check. him to remind that stat, and if he says it's those WWE... No, Rey Mysterio held the WWE version of the Cruiserweight title too. Ah. There you go. But, um, but either and way, the, the point I... It can't have been that then. Yeah. It must be something else. Must have been. It must be something else. Oh, I'm going to have to find out what that is now. 
it's going to annoy me otherwise. We'll tweet him. I'm wondering if I've still got it on my uh, commentary notes. I probably haven't because it was something he would have told me there and then. I'd have yeah. just written down. That's uh, fair never enough. mind. It's probably something. But um, yeah. But but as you say, you know, the thing is, he had a he had a very successful career, um, in WWE with with that gimmick. Once you know, once Vince McMahon had got a new gimmick for him, and uh, ah, there we go. I've got it. He was the longest reigning cruiserweight champion in both WWE and WCW. Uh, that was what it was. Because he held the title while they were still shut down, I guess that makes sense. Because that belt never stayed in the same place for too long. Chavo himself probably had a shout for one of the longest WCW reigns. Because basically when they put that belt back on him in late 2000s, he, he he ran with that. He he basically gave that division the kiss of life, considering what it had become with things like Ed Oklahoma Ferrara holding it yes. and Medusa. And Char- Charo's run brought it back to where it was and did it in an entertaining, engaging way. Uh, and that's why the praise is here for it. But yeah, but that, that reign wouldn't have been too far behind what Helms's reign became. And, and I'd like to think that if those two carried on that that those reigns would have carried on to be of a... You, you don't want them to hold the belt for years and years, but to get back to, to medium-term lengths of three to four yeah. months and changing the we're, title we're, at the right time rather than every week like it used to seem to feel like. Yeah, where things mean something, indeed. Yes, OK. So, yeah, we, uh, we're back to uh, the backstage skits and uh, Commissioner Lance Storm tells Brian Adams that Chronic are up after the following match. Uh, but there's no sign of uh, Brian Clark yet. But, um, you know, if, if the WCW doctor is anything like my GP, they're always running late, so it's no surprise. Um, all I'll say is Lance Storm's a much better wrestler than he's an actor. Uh, we then have a video package showing how Dustin Rhodes got reinstated into WCW and has been feuding with Rick Steiner. Liam, what the hell was all this about? I didn't quite follow it. So, yeah, well, at the last pay-per-view, we had uh, Humorous as General Rection. He was the US champion after that long war with Lance Storm, which was quite a satisfying finish in the end. You know, about as good as it got, really, for uh, Bill DeMott, that feud with Lance Storm. He lost the belt to Shane Douglas at Sin, and it looked like Shane Douglas was going to be the Hill US champion. He was the right level for it. He was the right guy to hold the belt. Oh, no, wait, change of plans. We are going to hot shot it onto Rick Steiner, who's going to pretend to be a babyface, win the title, and then turn on Kevin Nash and side of his brother to join what is becoming this uh, magnificent seven stable of CEO Ric Flair going corrupt and looking after his boys, who are, you know, it's a, it's a pretty random bunch of guys, but it's it's setting up a posse of people to surround Scott Steiner for the inevitable return of the Nashes and the Goldbergs when the Big Bang happens. So, all right, yeah. no harm, no foul. So suddenly we've changed tack. Shane Douglas is out of the picture. He'd be a great guy to get on the podcast to ask what the hell happened there because he seemed to go in favour one minute, out of favour the next. And, yeah, so it's, it's Dustin Rhodes who's against the regime. Versus Rick Steiner, who's won the belt and very much joined the regime. So it it's a simple end destination, but it's a very complicated route to get there. I see. Very much like WCW. Yeah, you can't argue say. that. 
Yes. Okay. So uh, it is in, indeed. It is a US title. Dustin Rhodes challenging Rick Steiner. Uh, Rick Steiner manages to drop his title belt walking to the ring. Oh well. Um, Rhodes attacks Steiner before the bell lands a DDT for a near fall right at the beginning. We go to the outside and the wrestler gets thrown into the guardrail for the third match on this show, and we're only on match number five. Um, both men are wearing black tops and red bottoms, which is, is an unavoidable no-no in wrestling, as yes. you said. I mean, I've been, I've I've known it before where you know we, everyone's getting changed, and one of the wrestlers will say to the other, "You know, what color gear are you wearing today?" and make sure they're not wearing the same color. You know, assuming they've got different colored outfits and so on. Um, Rhodes kicks out of a Steiner line, which infuriates Steiner, and the the commentator this this got me as well. The commentators ask how many people have kicked out of that but in truth I've never seen Rick Steiner try and pin anyone with one no he's always just been a trademark move not a finisher just a quick pop um, it? yeah good close um, to be fair oh yeah um, better than Lex bloody Lugas <laughs> um, Steiner Steiner clamps on a single leg Boston Crab in the centre of the ring he uh, takes off his shirt to make things less confusing for the casual viewer uh, the crowd are definitely into this one even if the action is is nothing spectacular um, Rhodes hits a big lariat for a near fall. He lands his bulldog, but Steiner cleverly rolls to the floor. Rhodes follows him out, and we're back to running people into the guardrail and getting a steel chair out. Uh, just like in the last match, the referee takes the chair away, but doesn't spot Steiner removing the turnbuckle pad. I mean, don't they have agents for any of these matches? Um, Steiner drops Rhodes headfirst onto the exposed steel and puts his feet on the ropes for a shady title-retaining pin in 9 minutes 11 seconds. Um, Steiner hits a Death Valley driver afterwards for good measure. He grabs the mic and rattles off some catchphrases for the crowd to join in with like any good heel would. Um, Dustin Rhodes then comes back on Steiner, hits the Shattered Dreams kick to the knackers, um, okay, match, nothing spectacular, but the crowd lifted it. Yeah, they, they, they were into this, and thankfully, Dustin Rhodes got a lot more offense than your typical Rick Steiner opponent. Give you a good example, most people would rate Booker T as being a better and more enjoyable wrestler to watch in a singles environment than Dustin Rhodes. But when Booker T won the US title from Steiner at Greed, again, check that episode out, it's in our archives, uh, the following month, it was a it was a far inferior match to this. Mostly because it was Rick Steiner doing his usual boring shit, hogging all the offense, and you finally got an explosive burst of Booker T offense right at the finish. Uh, this was more back and forth. This was more of a walkabout brawl, which is playing to both guys' strengths. They started off quick and fast, as you said, uh, with, with with big moves and weapon shots and that, and they kept it going from there. And as a result, it's about as good as a match between these two is going to be. Yeah, I mean, it was your, your staple of Dustin Rhodes in WCW, wasn't it? The 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 brawls around ringside. And, and also, they were... Um... They're all of the time. It, you know, the, this is the ECW era that we're talking about. Yeah, and, and Jet, you make a really good point there. It is very reminiscent of mid-90s Dustin Rhodes matches. We always make that joke whenever we cover a 94-95 pay-per-view. It's basically Rhodes in a singles match versus Colonel Robert Parker's heel of choice that month. And they're usually yeah. trying to work 
what is technically a, a straight wrestling match, but they're trying to lean on as much brawling as they can get away with because they need it. And yeah, this this match would have fit right in on a 1994 WCW pay-per-view underneath a tedious Hulk Hogan main event. <laughs> okay, well, we're backstage again. Uh, Commissioner Lance Storm is getting ready for his match, and CEO Ric Flair tells him to get Dustin Rhodes out of the building and do the same with any baby faces after their matches. Um, he then says that the winners of the Chronic V Totally Buffed match will receive a world title. Sorry, a world tag team title shot at a time not determined. Um, we then see DDP backstage giving a pep talk to Ernest the Cat Miller, telling him that he needs to get the commissionership back as all the baby faces are disappearing from WCW. So very much as you said earlier, Liam, this is a, a an easy-to-follow thread of a storyline running throughout the entire show. Yeah, it's cliche as all mother of shit, the authority yes. figure stuff and wrestlers competing for positions of authority like their title belts really overdone at this point but yeah it's it's a story to follow and you can get into that the hills really are running rampant they've got the u.s title they've got the world title they're they're putting together a scheme as we're starting to see to try and pinch the tag titles back from the thrillers who wouldn't play ball with the with the new regime uh they're starting to get all the power. They've got the commissionership away from Cat. It's with Lance Storm. This is Cat's chance to win it back. As much as you shouldn't be having weekly matches to be the fucking commissioner of the company. Uh, yeah, all right. This is this is their chance to at least have some sort of yin to the yang. Yeah. Okay, next up, match number six is Totally Buffed, which is Luger and Bagwell against Chronic. Um, Shivani says that there are no substitutions allowed because Brian Clark is nowhere to be seen, um, despite having a substitute not only entering the opening match, but winning and getting a future title shot. Because? Um, they, because WCW. Yeah. Because they didn't have agents. <laughs> well, if they did, well, they did have agents, but they clearly weren't doing a very good job. Um, Luger looks ancient with short hair and a wrinkly face. I've said this before. Um, he cuts a promo while the crowd chant for Goldberg, who Luger says has been fired. Um, Luger's rambling promo is basically alleging that the Magnificent Seven are the greatest group ever put together, and that that group consists of Flair, Luger, Bagwell, Jarrett, the Steiners, and Road Warrior Animal. Okay. Um, he hands the microphone to Bagwell. Uh, I'm just wanting us to get on with the match. Bagwell claims that Brian Clark has not been released. I, I presume that he means he hasn't been cleared to wrestle by WCW's doctor. Dr. Joe, um, as Becky Lynch put it. <laughs> Dr. Joe, yes. Pretty much. As opposed to, you know, I don't think he means that you know Brian Clark's handcuffed to a radiated Beirut style or something. Um, here comes Brian, Clark, Brian Adams even, uh, all on his own with no sign of Brian Clark. But then we, we see a figure in the shadows on the ramp that's approximately Brian Clark's size. Um, all four men brawl in the aisle, but no one's put the lights back on after Chronic's entrance, so they're fighting in pitch black and you can't see anything. Um, apparently, then Clark gets wiped out with a steel chair by Bagwell. I'll have to take Scott Hudson's word, Nick, because I couldn't see a fucking thing. Um, we're now back to the two-on-one handicap situation. Adams is getting dominated by the quick tagging, totally buffed. Um, occasionally, we go to back to a shot of Clark lying motionless on the ground with a chair on top of his head. 
Um, Luger's basically toying with Adams while doing various muscle poses. Adams does make a brief comeback on both, including the worst-looking power bomb I've ever, the power slam I've ever seen on Luger. He press slams Bagwell onto Luger. Um, he's making a fight of it. The ref is being completely ineffective here because he's continuously allowing Bagwell and Luger to double team Adams rather than having one man on the tag rope. Um, as Adams is gaining momentum, he's seemingly attacked from behind by Clark. Um, but then we see that it's actually Mike Orson dressed as Clark, which therefore explains why all of that was happening in darkness. There was me thinking it was WCW's production team not doing things right, but it was all supposed to happen. Um, so then uh, just after the reveal, which includes Orson with a, with a wig and a false moustache and false sideburns to, to look like Clark, um, we see the real Brian Clark hobbling down the ramp with his shirt torn, clearly being beaten up. Um, makes me wonder what kind of doctor he saw. Uh, Bagwell hits a sloppy blob buff blockbuster to win the match for his team after what is essentially a three-on-one situation set up by Flair. Um, to me, it was a classic smoke and mirrors job, but it was the right length of time for it to work. Yeah, thankfully it didn't go any longer because... As a, it was creative. It was, you know, it was a story being told, and you'll see a lot worse in professional wrestling. I kind, I've got, I've got a bit of bias for anything around this time period, as I've already admitted. But I kind of dug it. But if you'd have gone any longer, you'd have been leaning heavily on the fact that at the end of the day, it's Brian Adams and Lex Luger wrestling, and uh, it's like Buff Bagwell's much better at this stage either. But Brian Adams and Lex Luger, where I remember. Uh, when we covered a little bit of, of the WCW NWO era under Bischoff in like 97-98, Adams versus Luger was just horrific and it's not going to be any better three years later. So that's the one thing about this. You'd have thought, I suppose it might, there might have been a a legitimate injury to Brian Clark that they were planning to for this storyline or they may have just fancied making Mike Awesome look a bit more like Clark than Adams, even though the two were not that different at all. But surely the better move would have been, if possible, to have gone with Clark carrying the load, who's a who's a little more capable and a little more dynamic in the ring and doesn't blow as many moves as Adams. But yeah, otherwise, yeah, it, it was short enough and it was it was yeah. story driven, so it's one of the things you can't rate it as a match. You rate the storyline, and the, and the whole thing's chugging along nicely. It's, it's entertaining enough, and yeah, it it was creative as fuck. I liked it. It was good fun. It was a good fun angle, yeah. Um, so after a nice little piece to camera by the commentators to position the next match, we go backstage and we see Lance Storm getting security to throw Chronic out of the building. Um, Brian Clark, who could barely barely walk a minute ago is now able to beat up the security guys it's in um, it's in chronic's contract they have to beat up security if they if they have to job on the show they get to beat up three times as many security it's in their contract i see i wasn't aware of this i see um okay it's time for match number seven it's the the match for the wcw commissionership because yeah that's how things work um can i imagine if that happened like that in the real you know in the workplace you know We've got a uh, we've got a position for an account manager, and uh, it's going to be a fatal four-way. And the person who grabs the contracts that's hanging from the ceiling tiles gets the position and a pay rise. I'd be up anyway, 
Yeah, it'd be good fun. A health and safety nightmare. Imagine the paperwork, though. Jesus. Um, the commentators note how the baby faces who can support Miller here are getting ejected from the building one by one, and there's uh, still no sign of Kevin Nash. I mean, maybe they told Nash he was losing and he mysteriously got injured. Um, <laughs> Storm... Sorry, I'm far too cynical today. And it's um, far too Storm close cuts... to the bone as well. Indeed. Heart attack? What a heart attack? Um, Storm cuts one of his typical promos of the time, you know, asking if he can be serious for a minute and uh, declaring his greatness and asking everyone to, to rise for the Canadian national anthem. This whole thing with serious and miserable Lance Storm was a fantastic gimmick. Um, the Canadian anthem doesn't play. Instead, we get a cat babyface promo as he walks down, down the aisle. Um, it's babyface v heel, it's USA v Canada, it's a stipulation that the fans care about. The crowd is hot for this one. Um, the commentators explain that Miller as commissioner is the only person who stood up to CEO Ric Flair. Uh, for the fourth match out of seven, someone gets thrown into the guardrails and Storm sends Miller in as they brawl on the outside. Uh, a feature of virtually every match so far, as I said. Um, Storm targets Miller's surgically repaired right knee, and the story of the whole match so far is Storm targeting that knee. Um, each time Miller gets to his feet and gets some momentum, Storm cuts him off by going back to the knee. Cat throws Storm off the top, goes for a body slam, but his knee gives out. Storm then wraps his knee around the ring post twice. Cat uh, gets a second win, starts dancing. Um, but Storm counters the kick by grabbing Miller's leg, which is a really nice touch, and goes for a single leg Boston Crab. Uh, but Miller gets to the ropes. Cat hits a big kick and both go down. Then Mike Sanders in a suit comes marching down to ringside. Not entirely sure why, though. He did feature in the, the vignettes beforehand. Um, but he's stopped in his track by Cat's van, Ms. Jones, who I believe is a former Nitro girl. Um, she slaps and then hits a pretty impressive-looking round house kick to him, which sends him falling to the floor. And this provides enough of a distraction for Storm to be blindsided by a spinning kick from Miller, who wins the match and regains his position as WCW commissioner for a huge pop um it was a straightforward match it was nothing fancy but it was positioned around a storyline that people could a understand and b cared about and was uh, was played out by characters that people also cared about yeah i mean we, we can have the debate all day long about whether or not we really want to be as diehard fans do we want to see more bloody authority figures we're having this debate <laughs> 18 years later because it's something you still see far too much on like WWE too much admin too much uh, Deuce X McMachina too much authority coming in and taking over the um, the narrative of the TV show but um, even if you you just look aside that and you see at the, at the core of this is a match between two guys who are just natural for each other really uh, you've got the charismatic cat. You've got the the as you said the the, the the sourpuss storm, and there's no doubt in our minds that Storm is the man who carries the mechanics of this match as a superior wrestler. But although oh, yeah. although I, I I will not hear of anyone saying that Storm lacks charisma or personality or the ability to talk. He he has all those things, but especially in a, in a situation like this with this. Uh, with this anchor of a commissionership stipulation, uh, I, 
I think Kat does a really good job of carrying the personality side of it. Because at the end of the day, it's mostly the babyface who, who whips the crowd up into a frenzy. And as we know, he's he, he's brilliant at it. He might be a bad yeah. average to, to mediocre wrestler, but he knows how to work that crowd. He's got such great charisma. And these two, I would have loved to have seen an extended feud between these two. And it could have been carried on more than just who wants to be in charge. So, yeah. 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 I mean, they are such, you know, the, the, some of the great feuds are between, you know, the polar opposite characters. Yeah. You, know, you think of, I don't know, Flair and Dusty Rhodes, for example, you know, and this, this is an example of that where you've got two complete opposites that therefore play off each other. Fantastically. Yeah. It's a, it's a natural thing. I'd love to see more of these two feuding more than just for a, a one month plot device. They could have made it work. Uh, but I'll take what we'll get. This, this was decent enough. It was enjoyable. Two guys I just enjoy, as I know, it's the same with you. It's two guys we both enjoy seeing wrestle. So seeing wrestle each other is going to be a treat yes. for us personally. And I, know, I, I think we're in the majority, to be honest. Indeed. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, following a brief video package hyping the next match, it, it is time for that next match, which is set to be Diamond Dallas Page versus Jeff Jarrett. Um, before that, we're told that the Cats reign as commissioner doesn't start until midnight, and for now, he's been removed from the building, uh, which means they don't even let him shower. It's terrible. This this is a harsh regime, and and clearly, personal hygiene is not the top of their agenda. He's going to be the boss, but he's going to be a really fucking stinky boss. Yep. Have to uh, wait till he gets to the, to the hotel to shower. Um Jarrett comes out with the microphone and he gets a video played where uh, he shows DDP challenging Canyon to a match anywhere, anytime. Um, so Jarrett states that Flair has signed off a match right now between them. So as Paige faces the aisle, waiting for Canyon to appear, Canyon does indeed appear, but from underneath the ring and attacks Paige from behind. Um, but a fuming page no sells it and takes over on Canyon. The match spills to the outside again. Hooray. Where Canyon uses his leg to guide Page's head down onto the ring steps, and Page is now bleeding from the side of the head near his left eye following this move. Um, Canyon drops Page face first onto the canvas. Um, the blood flow is uh, is now increasing to match the commentator's level of concern. It's not the usual spot on the centre of the forehead, which makes it look different. It's by the eye. It's a bit more like a kind of a boxing cut or a legit cut. Um, each time Canyon's on the offence, Page manages to briefly fight back. It's a, a back-and-forth encounter, and the crowd once again are well into this and are solidly behind Page. Um, Page nearly turns Canyon inside out with a thunderous R&R, gave her a two-count. Canyon retaliates with a sit-out powerbomb for another two-count. He then hits one of his own also for a two-count. Um, Page goes for a uh, diamond cutter. But Canyon kicks him low and hits one of his own, or Canyon Cutter, as they call it, for a two count. Um, then Jarrett comes back to ringside. Page goes for a folding press on Canyon. Canyon kicks out. Page lands on the referee, taking him out, which gives Jarrett the opportunity to jump in the ring and hit Page with the stroke. Um, Canyon slowly crawls over to Page, picks him up, hits a flat liner on Page to win the match. With Page on the canvas... Canyon gets the mic and does some impromptu re-announcing to announce that the scheduled Page v. Jarrett match is now taking place. And for once, this is all actually making logical sense. Um, 
paid Jarrett called Page out on his anytime, any place quote to get Canyon's match arranged. And now this is the scheduled match that he, he signed for. So um, the commentator's outrage. He doesn't really ring true for me. Uh, we now have a fresh Jarrett brawling around the arena with a tired, bloody Page. And this is a, an ECW-style brawl, which, as I said, was very popular at the time. Page stands up on the commentary table. DDT's on him onto it, but not through it. Um, Page does seem to be having a second wind. He gets back onto the table to hit a diamond cutter, but Jarrett shoves him off, and the disorientated Page lands and staggers into Tony Schiavone, who falls to the floor. Jarrett gets a chair and nails Page in the ribs, and the scene is looking suitably chaotic. Um, the action returns to the ring. It's all Jarrett. After a momentary fight back, Jarrett locks in the sleeper hold. Page starts fading again. Page is doing an amazing job of selling here with his eyes rolling back into his head. But then Page gets some kind of energy spurt out of nowhere. Lands a twisting, jumping DDT. Both men are down. Page drapes his arm across him for a two count. And the crowd are well and truly into it, chanting DDP loudly. It's Page on the offense getting two counts, but then he gets pulled out of the ring by Canyon, who reappears out of nowhere. Page then gets a chair across the head, somehow rolls a shoulder up for a two count. Jarrett can't believe it. Canyon gives Jarrett his guitar, but Jarrett accidentally hits Canyon, not Page, with it after an exhausted Page staggers back into Canyon. Page then hits a diamond cutter out of nowhere for a three count to a huge pop. Um, great stuff to me. What did you make of it? Yeah, I, I ate all this up with a spoon. And that was when it happened. And when I've watched it since, I ate all up with a spoon. Came with WWE Network, ate all up with a spoon. I'm a, I'm a fan of DDP. I'm a fan of Jeff Jarrett. I'm a fan of Canyons. Uh, and the, as you said, the, the story's really good. The, the storytelling as a whole in this preview has been whether you think some of the stuff, and we, we've picked apart some of the decisions, and we've been a fan of some of the others. But this is sort of stuff if someone's never seen uh wcw before and they're watching this more for them because they're gonna be dead in a month but but seriously if they if they if they watch this at cold the stories and you you know you've got good characters on the show some large enough characters and the storytelling is coherent enough to make this it, it welcomes you into the house doesn't it you know, you, you want something to... I know the obsession with wrestling is to have something catch your eye. But storytelling like this will not just open the door, it will bring you in, pour you a drink, and make you feel at home on the couch and make you want to stay for a while. And they accomplish this with two very good matches. What you expect from a micromanager like Paige working with two workhorses like Kanan and Jarrett. Uh, but even when you said about... Uh, the the commentators having false outrage. Now I thought the outrage was pretty legit, and that's what I loved about this is is you had a babyface being a babyface, you had a heel being a heel. At the end of the day, what what they did was legal because he said anytime, any place with with babyface bravado, babyface bravado that was prompted by Canyon sneak attacking him on Nitro. So they've instigated this. They've got his bravado going. He said something like this, and 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 I've used it against him. Yeah, if you think about it, Dean, if you said to me, look, yo, Liam, I love you, mate, because you know, for for those listening, Dean tells me he loves me all the time, just not on the show. And if you say, look, look I love you, mate, anytime you want to come around, 
you be my guest, you know, my house is your house, anytime you want. And if I took him up on that by showing up at midnight when he's got work the next morning and helping myself to all the stuff in his fridge, uh, yeah, I don't think Dean would be too happy with that, even though he technically said any time. Not after last time. Exactly. And as I'm using a yeah. real example for this. And this is why I'm so sure of myself in this situation. <laughs> but, but yeah, you've got you've got baby faces being baby faces with baby face flaws. They're not complete schmucks. They've got fair game baby face flaws, bravado, making mistakes with what they say because they're so angry they've just been jumped by the bad guys. Bad guys then use that to their advantage, put him in this situation where Canyon, the guy who needs the win, gets a win. And Jarrett, the guy who doesn't, because after the failed world title runs, he's pretty much established as a as a, as a B plus level guy. Uh, you know, a wrestler, if, if those though carried on for another five years, he would have been working against top guys the whole time, but never in the main event, never as the world champion again. Although in my fan fiction, I took that as a challenge and made him world champion anyway. Uh, <laughs> just wanted to make it better than the first four he had in, in 2000 under Russo, uh, which is not exactly a, a high bar. Uh, but but the, the the writing of it, the storytelling, the booking was absolutely spot on. And as you said, aside from the tropes, and yeah, this is 2001, so you're going to have a hell of a lot of brawling on the outside and and cheating spots being repeated without much care or thought process other than that it's really enjoyable wrestling yeah i mean i think the the only thing that was missing from this match probably and this is where my experience and bias comes into things i guess is that you you could have done here with the the heel commentator who would therefore, you know, who would basically be defending quite legitimately and reasonably defending what Jarrett and Canyon have done, because ultimately, it, you know, the the heels have outsmarted the babyface, but the baby the babyface is in peril, and the babyface ultimately gets the the victory in the end. So Jesse, it, Jesse everything... Ventura would have been perfect. There's oh, there's yeah. there's a dozen different types of heel commentator. Jesse Ventura loved to take an inch of fair logic in favour of the hill and run a mile with it. He would love coming across very coherent and put together a fair argument for the hills, but you could tell there was a little glint in his eye and a smirk on his face that he got to defend the hills even though they were doing hill things. But he would take the, the logic of this situation, Paige said, anytime, any place, and he would really run with that. So yeah, I'll make you right, he kind of needs that. Uh, and yeah. you also need a babyface commentator who's going to stand up to him and say, "Well, look, they're they're exploiting that. If they if they want to win the match, why why they feel like they need to set him up with two matches in a row? They're tr- they're trying to pull a fast one. And then you've got your back and forth, and whenever they are doing their little uh, filler spots in the match, you've got the commentator to get them through it. But you know, this was another example. I know we've we've said it before, but this was another example where it really hammered home how much of a huge, naturally created, organic babyface DDP had become by this point. Yeah, and you know the fact that we've got this storyline where the the babyfaces are getting run out of town one by one, and he's still standing there, it, it emphasises it even more. Well, that's one of the main reasons they're they're making him look strong here is because for the next month, the final month almost of of WCW, he's going to be the last man standing. He's going to be the next challenger after what happens in the main event 
on Scott Steiner's Reign of Terror. And to be honest, even though we do have the main event coming up, for me, especially the last time I watched this, because I'm, I'm, I'm well, I've watched this pay-per-view several times. The last time I watched this, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I switched it off after page one against Jarrett. That was my main event, because I know what's coming, and I, I don't want to do it. I don't want to talk about it. The, the only other thing I'd say about Paige, I wish he'd wear something a bit more fancy than just plain black tights. He also had a really... This... Yeah. Um, were these the ones with the lightning bits on them? No, these these were literally just plain black tights. Yeah, I, th- I think he did... Li- literally plain. And I mean, I know he did that gimmick years before where he was like, you know, wrestling in plain gear. <laughs> and he yes. Broke, broke, we covered before, but but it's like, yeah, he's the... He's one of the top baby faces. He should have slightly more jazzy looking gear by this point. That's just a minor grumble. It's still better than stonewashed denim and taped ribs because that look got cliche fast. That was like his entire US title era, wasn't it? But yeah, this was also the time he was using that. um, I don't know if because I'm guessing maybe... Uh, they were getting lent on for copyright with the blatant smells like Teen Spirit ripoff. But for his last four months in WCW, he used a a different theme tune, which I kind of liked. Nowhere near as good. Oh, as, no. Uh, no, you see, I I saw that on the network, and I just thought that was a a network dubbing over the music job. If I remember correctly, they may not have even dubbed over this. Ah, fair enough. Okay. There you go. I can't remember. Like, it was super. Bro- I have to go back and look. Another excuse to watch the yeah. 2001 pay per view. But yeah, the theme he did use for the last four months was. I'm guessing they, they must have had pressure, or, or maybe it's because the company's back phone. They're thinking the turn execs going right. We're not going to do anything that's going to provoke anyone. Just bail out of any potential costly things because we want to sell this fucking company fast. So maybe it had to do with that. But I liked it. it was it was cool. It's it's hard to track down the song because it's. It's either by a band called Dog and the song is called Fat, or it's by a band called Fat and the song is called Dog. But with such basic names like that, yeah, try Google searching that. Just get a bunch of <laughs> bulldog pictures. <laughs> it's true, I've tried it. Cause I do like, but you can find it on YouTube. Instrumental, uh, instrumental he used and the one with the words, which is what it was derived from. But yeah, I didn't mind it. But that's a that's a wild tangent yeah okay uh i'm just trying to delay getting to this fucking match it's time for our main event no it's not yeah time for the main event (laughs) um we still don't know if kevin nash is here uh apparently imagine if they just said no he's not here sorry and that was the end of the pay-per-view although actually that might have been better um we get a video package showing the events leading up to this including scott steiner attacking nash's knee with a lead pipe sending him to hospital which was the last time anyone had seen him uh flair's music hits it's time for an announcement maybe um even though he's a heel who's just trying to destroy all baby faces he's still getting cheered um but now it turns out he's just here to join the commentary desk and it's time for our old pal michael buffer so it is match number nine or match number ten i suppose um main event for the wcw world heavyweight title scott steiner the champion with Medeja, his valet, because everyone had a valet at this point in WCW, cool. versus Kevin Nash. 
Um, so Steiner comes out with Medeja, but sadly uh, without a live tiger this time. Um, Buffer announces how Sid Vicious, Booker T and Sting have all disappeared since being defeated by Steiner. Uh, I suppose it's pretty certain that Sid's not coming back anytime soon. Steiner gets the mic and orders Buffer out the ring. So that was money well spent. He's literally done half a job. Uh, he's now claiming to have broken Sid's leg, which I thought was gravity that did it. But in case we had forgotten what happened to Sid, we get multiple replays of the most graphic injury in wrestling history. Lovely. Um, Steiner invites Flair into the ring to announce what will happen to Nash if he doesn't show up. Um, well, you know, I'm kind of thinking, well, if he's not here, he's going to have trouble teleporting to Nashville. But, you know, if there's any place that Kevin Nash should be in, it's Nashville, surely. Oh, very good. Um, Thank you very Jesus much. Christ. Took me ages to think of that. Um, Flair gets out the envelope he's been carried around and reads out its contents, and he announces that the loser of this match tonight will leave WCW forever. I mean, don't worry, lads. You've only got a month to hang on anyway. And um, that's, hang on. So that is official because it was written on a letter and put in an envelope. Yep. <laughs> yep. Is that because WCW or is that because wrestling? Because that, that is such a pro wrestling thing. It'd be horrible to just have a pop at WCW for doing something like that. I don't know. I mean, we have, we've had odd stipulations and we have matches signed there and then in wrestling all the time, don't we? To, but to have, to have this, actual physical envelope it's like having a burglar with a bag that says swag on it isn't it it's swag it yeah. is a sledgehammer of pot, plot device but don't worry the um the logic the wrestling logic is going to get better in a minute oh for sure um because flair and steiner order referee charles robinson start counting and then nash's music hits and apparently that's enough these days to break the count um Kevin Nash is brought out in a wheelchair, pushed by two sexy nurses straight out of the Benny Hill show. He's got his leg up straight in a plaster cast and a hideous-looking blanket over his lap. Um, Steiner orders the referee to start counting because it seems that music, playing music really does break the count these days. Nash removes the blanket to show that his find the plaster cast was false. Um, Steiner's up on the second rope, mouthing on the crowd, blissfully unaware that Nash is in the ring. He jumps off the buckles. Nash nails him with the championship belt, and Charles Robinson calls for the bell to start the match. Nash gets the mic, then tells the ref to count. The ref counts to three, and uh, Steiner has been pinned in 17 seconds, and the commentator's saying that Steiner's gone. Flair is going nuts in the way that only Ric Flair can go. He grabs the mic and declares that he just forgot to announce that actually this is a two out of three falls match with no disqualification. So um, we then cut backstage to see DDP mumbling to himself, walking to ringside, but then he gets ambushed by Lugan Bagwell and dumped inside a flight case. Um, Steiner is bleeding, getting beaten from pillar to post by Nash. He gets clotheslined over the top to the floor. Medeja interferes to distract Nash and passes Steiner his leg lead pipe back um now nash is uh, now it's nash's turn to be out like a light and steiner can't get nash into the ring so he orders flair to announce that this is the falls count anywhere match and he pins him on the floor it's one one after two and a half minutes um he then nails nash with a pair of brass knucks um uh, it must be pointed out as well that this match is being competed at a snail's pace it's, it's awful um Steiner breaks his own count to do press-ups rather than pin Nash and win the match, which makes no sense. Um, Steiner goes for the Nux again, but Nash blocks it. He then lands a side slam. Both men are down. 
Flair leaves his commentary position uh, to hand Steiner a chair, which he uses to clobber Nash over the side of the head. Now now Nash is bleeding as well. He then gets Nash's deadweight body to the Steiner recliner, but Nash revives, fights back, and dumps Steiner out of the ring. Nash gets a two-count with a choke slam. Medeja jumps in the ring and unsuccessfully tries to take down the ref. Um, Nash hits snake eyes and a big boot on Steiner. The straps come down. Nash hits a jackknife powerbomb, but the ref is taken down by Medeja, who remembers her cue at the second time of asking. And Flair stopping him, oh, and Flair as well, which stops him from counting to three. Nash grabs Medeja and hits an absolutely brutal-looking side slam on her, which you couldn't get away with doing these days. Um, Nash goes for the cover again, but Flair drags Charles Robinson out of the ring and levels him with a right hand. Nash grabs Flair, pulls him up on the apron, but Steiner low blows Nash. Flair slides another steel chair in the ring. Steiner smacks Nash with another chair, but another referee comes in and Steiner puts a lifeless Nash in the Steiner recliner. His arm drops three times. Steiner is declared your winner in 11 minutes. And as Shivani himself says on commentary, Ah, God, this sucks. I love shoot comments that aren't supposed to be shoot comments. In the in the immortal words of Scott Keith, because that really does sum this up. Uh, so, yeah, do you remember that title reign they started for Scott Steiner, where he was this unhinged, unstoppable bad guy who's now developed this massive backing stable with a magnificent seven that includes the owner of the company, and they're really worried who's going to stop him as he tears for everyone. Oh, wait, forget that. Kevin Nash wants to look like an absolute fucking chap. Oh. I'm so glad this was Kevin Nash's last match in WCW. It's just, it's such a shame that the company only got five weeks without him afterwards. <laughs> this, this whole thing. I mean, we, we've talked about the... The, cli- the number of cliche things from this era that are all over this show. And that, that stands true. But the worst thing is, is that so many of them are visible in this match alone. You've got the uh, Steve Austin dude love match where the owner makes up the rules on the fly. They got done to death after those two had a great match uh, over the edge 98. That thing just got hammered home. Um, you've got all the other ones we've touched upon, the brawling in the crowd, and as you said, they're, they're, they're using so many gimmicks and, and shortcuts, and yet it is such a slow, tedious match. That's worrying. And you know, the, the amazing thing about this was that none of the fans facing the hard cam seemed to be reacting to Nash losing. They're all just standing there, and many of them are looking towards the aisle as if they're expecting someone else to appear. Um, yeah, no one's taken the loser must leave WCW stipulation seriously, which is kind of ironic in hindsight. But and and to me, this kind of gimmick is one that you use for mid-card comedy rather than your main. Remember the old go back to the Lance Storm gimmick. Do you remember those? I can't remember which one it was now that we've covered it. A pay per view they did in Canada. Do not do Don't, not use well, that as a defence of it because that was fucking abysmal, and that whole no, pay per view no, was no, abysmal. Yeah, but let let me finish. But what my my point is though that that kind of you know comedy it's a it's a, a mid card comedy gimmick because that was that was mid card comedy, not your main event. 
they've they've used the mid card comedy gimmick and tried to make it serious and put it in their main event, and it just doesn't work. And even then, it's I mean, sucked. A, a tweet that we one of the tweets we received that really kind of stands out. Philip Goad said to us. Um, as far as the main event goes, the fact that this isn't the dumbest main event in company history should tell you everything you need to know about the company's history. Also, WCW, I know you're out of business, but I don't care. I never need to see the Sid spot again. Thank you. Do you know the other thing to think about? And I, I know I, I touch upon this when we do our when we do our um, Nitro watch-alongs and we talk about what was up against it on Raw. The following weekend, WC so the following weekend, WWF did No Way Out 2001 with a main event of Rock v. Kurt Angle. You also had the Dudley Boys against um, Kane and Undertaker against Edge and Christian in a tables match. You had Triple H and Stone Cold Steve Austin in a two out of three falls match. Uh, you had Chris Jericho in a fatal four-way match against Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero and X-Pac for the Intercontinental Championship. So you look at that lineup. And you look at this lineup, and which one are you going to want to watch? Oh, for sure. I mean, to, to be to be completely fair on WCW at this point, the the war was over. They were well and truly defeated. And at this point in their life, they're they're hoping to survive and bounce back in what you'd like to take Bischoff at face value, even though it's difficult to do given his history. Take him at face value and assume that when he says the company would literally reboot and start from the ground up, that they would. You know, accept their role as number two company and just look to turn a profit because the potential to make money was there and they had the stars and they had the ability to. Uh, so if you if you just avoid the comparison of what is a, a triumphant WWE having, you know, that no way it was amazing. It was one of their best ever pay-per-views. And just look here, for me, it was, it was a great month to watch wrestling on pay-per-view because uh, this is a good show. Uh, just... Don't watch this fucking match. Do what I did. Pretend Jarrett versus Page is the main event. Because this shower of shit at the end that completely defeats the entire storyline of the Magnificent Seven and Scott Steiner's Reign of Terror. Because presumably Kevin Nash didn't want to do a thing where he just got beaten up and taken out by Steiner like the others had. Had to be a thing where he got screwed out of leaving the company. And of course he had to have hot chicks with him and comedy spots while he's doing it. Uh, take that away. This is, this is a good show for, from a company that's like on its last legs. You hope at this point it's not. In hindsight we know that it is and it really does go out of business five weeks later. But uh, all things considered... It really did, for those last three pay-per-views, feel like it was in rehab, thanks to, presumably, the, the John Laurinaitis and the Terry Taylors just getting back to basics, trying to keep the company stable for a potential takeover. But, you know, you can, you can only wish that a com- someone would realise that that sort of stability doesn't just have to be used while you're waiting for a takeover. It can be used to keep a company making sense, uh, mm. making people, as we said earlier, making people who see it for the first time want to watch more of it. And then the the potential to make stars with these big, tall guys and the, and the million-dollar bodies, you might be able to make that work when the show's not putting everyone off. Fair point. Fair point indeed. For me, best match was Page v. Jarrett stroke Canyon. 
worst match was the main event, and a, and a close second on best match was the cruiserweight title match between Chavo and Ray. Yeah, there was just so so much about this show that was just easy to follow. The the storylines, the decent matches. No, nothing about this show was amazing, but everything but the main event could be looked at in a way we could say that was good. That I'd, I'd watch a bit more of that. Uh, and they, this is what they badly needed in '99 when the when they started to fall behind WWE, but no, they're too short too short sighted. Sorry, to see that. Uh, but even even though it fills me with mixed emotions and a, and a tinge of sadness of what could have been, I'll always watch these 2001 pay-per-views. I'll watch them every couple of years at, at, at worst. And there, there's plenty to be happy about. Cool. So, so for, for the first time in a little while, Dean, I'll, I'll be saying this, but it is, it is time for a theme song. And oh, yes. the last time, because we don't, we don't, when we first started doing this, it was me and you doing pay-per-views and we pick, we'd alternate between who picks the theme. Then we started having guests on, we let the guests pick, which is fair enough. Then we started doing watch-alongs and I think the first watch-along, I picked a theme just because I wanted to shoehorn Elix Skipper's awesome theme in. But we kind of just thought, ah, we'll just, we won't do the themes for watch-alongs. So it's not often we get the chance to pick a theme ourselves but here we are doing a pay-per-view episode and there's no guest and because i did do edix last time i believe that makes it your turn right well well i i want to to um to pick a tune that we we should have heard as entrance music on this pay-per-view but we didn't for for reasons that become clear when when i ask you mr music maestro to press play pressing play So, uh, yeah, this is another WWE Network avoid a lawsuit cover-up, similar to Paige and Jarrett. It's the cat. Yeah. And it's, I can't believe it's taken us so long to get his theme song, because this is this is because WWE, it's also the Ernest Miller Appreciation Podcast. Indeed. He is an... an... I don't even know if he's a guilty pleasure. He's a pleasure. It's, uh, my my good friend Vikram Sangar, uh, who uh, is is a man with many connections in pro wrestling in this country. He uh, he got a sign on that Nitro we were talking about. He he got a sign on TV of uh, I paid to see the cat dance. I believe was his sign. But um, I mean, yeah, we've said before, the cat was not the greatest wrestler in the world, despite his proclamations that he was the greatest wrestler in the world. But my God, he was entertaining. He was always entertaining. He really was. And it's typical, like with a lot of things, it's a common theme that he he managed to find his feet just as a company 
was reaching the end of the road because as a mid-card babyface, doing little things like the commissioner job, which gave him more opportunities to speak more and wrestle less, uh, he, he just found his groove. He'd spent so long as an entertaining heel, and he got so popular that he reached that point where he could be a babyface for life in WCW. Life was five yeah. more weeks after his pay-per-view. And I like and, the and little the pair- dancing. Yeah. The dancing with the red slippers, yeah. The famous red slippers used to be a foreign object when he was a hill. <laughs> of all the yes. foreign objects you see, he did it a lot better than uh, Eric Bischoff did with the metal plate in his shoe at Starcade. Oh that? Jesus! <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, the the cat was awesome, and get get every chance we get, every every time he shows up on our screen, we're gonna find a way to talk for half an hour about how awesome he is, and at some point in the God knows how long future. The watch-alongs will get to a point where he's showing up and <laughs> that's going to continue. Indeed. Right, well, that is uh, that is that for uh, for this week for us, I guess. We will be back very shortly. We are, we are in, the, in the midst of lining up a few good guests for you, so we will keep you posted on that. But in the meantime, do give us a follow over on Twitter at BecauseWCW or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash because WCW our entire back catalogue of episodes all 29 other episodes are available at because wcw.podbean.com but until next time this is me the twist genius Dinos, on behalf of my colleague Liam Hap saying thanks for listening and we'll see you ringside